servant. Mark chapter 14. I wish I could say that um, this was a joyful New Year's Day passage, uh, but it's not. God has ordained that we look at a a solemn passage. Um, If you remember, just for context, uh, they just had the institution of the Lord's Supper and all the disciples just promised they would never betray Jesus. They would never turn on him, even if they had to die. And now we're going to be looking at uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 52. And we'll see um, if, they hold, if they hold good on their promise. <clears throat> so let's read this. This is God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need your help. 
Oh, we need your help to understand this and its implications for our lives. And we need your help uh, to be changed by it. Would you help it shape what we love? That we would love what you love and hate what you hate. And Lord, I pray that we would honestly uh, come face to face with you. We would encounter you, Jesus, as you encounter this cup, the cup of God's wrath. Holy Spirit, please come. Help us listen. Help me speak. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1967, uh, an energetic 17-year-old girl named Joni took a dive headfirst into the Chesapeake Bay, and she broke her neck. And she was instantly paralyzed from the neck down, never again to use her, her legs or her hands again. So one day she was popular. She was a star of the girls lacrosse team. She was a popular girl, energetic girl, um, one of the most popular girls at her high school. She loved to ride horses. And the next day she was in a cast, in a body cast, in the hospital, never again to walk, bound to a wheelchair. And Joni, like probably many of us would, she slipped into a deep depression. She even begged her best friend to help her commit suicide. She wanted, desperately, she wanted her old life back. And she refused the story that God had ordained for her life. And for two years after her accident, she, she held out hope that she would regain use of her arms and her legs, eventually get married to her high school boyfriend and, and go on to lead the life she always dreamed of. But eventually, after two years of wrestling, reality set in that she would never get better. She says this about uh, that time in her life. I wretched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. She goes on to talk about how she would, she would flee her new reality of being bound to a wheelchair. She would flee that by, by escaping into her imagination. This is what she says. Friends who had come to visit me had saddled horses and gone on a trail ride. I was feeling sorry for myself, comparing my lot to theirs. And I closed my eyes and visualized a similar day a couple of years earlier. In my daydreams, I was again with my boyfriend riding horseback together towards the forest, across the fragrant meadows, stopping in a deserted place. I relished memories of unrestrained pleasure, excitement, and sensual satisfaction. I was angry at God. I'd retrieve every tiny, tiny physical pleasure from my mind and throw it up to him in bitterness. I couldn't accept the fact, God's will, God's will, they said, I'd never do or feel these things again. Joni, by her own admission, was running. She was running as fast as she could, the only way that she could, to get away from this difficult providence that God had put in her life. But her attempts to escape 
didn't help at all. They just made things worse. They led to more bitterness, anger, and depression. And like Joni, each of us will have a cup that we will have to drink. A cup, when I say a cup, we're going to talk a lot about cups today. What I mean by that is it's a difficult providence from the Lord. A cup is is any evil or difficulty or suffering that comes to you that is undeniably God's will for your life. It's something that you would have to disobey God in order to get away from. Yet, you, as you see, its, its immediate source may be evil, and yet we know its ultimate source is from God, the one who's sovereign over everything. So for you, your cup may be the death of a loved one. It may be a difficult marriage. It may be prolonged singleness or a wayward child or like Joni, some form of physical illness or disability. And like Joni, when we encounter this cup for our lives, we run. We instinctively run from it, but this only leads to more pain, more suffering, more depression. It just makes things worse. In our passage today, Jesus is going to stare in the face of the greatest cup any human has ever drunk, the cup of God's wrath for human sin. And as he does, I want us to answer this question. How can you handle your cup faithfully? How can you handle your cup faithfully? So if you have your bulletin, you'll see the outline there. First, stop fighting and stop fleeing. So we're going to start by looking at how the disciples respond when they see Christ's cup coming. And they immediately kick into fight or flight mode. Look at verse 46. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know from other gospel accounts, this is Peter. And he's, he's usually rash and he kicks right into fight mode. He's like, we don't need to endure this. This is wrong. Let's just fight. Let's get out of here. Run away. We can, we can get through this. We don't need to endure this. On the other hand, you have a young man. Mark doesn't say who. He's apparently a follower of Jesus, perhaps one of the 12. And we see his response there at the very end of the passage in verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So I don't know if Mark included this for comic relief or just because it it really stood out to him, but what you need to see is this guy is willing to do whatever it takes to get away from this possible suffering. He's so desperate that he's willing to abandon even his clothing Not only does he abandon Jesus, but he he runs away naked. And, you know, like me, you probably wonder, why is this in here? But one thing I can say for certain why this is in here is because it it is descriptive of the attitude among the disciples as a whole. It's representative of them. They all 
flee. They all run, scared. They'll do whatever it takes to get away. Just as Jesus predicted, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And now let's contrast that with Christ, who's also a man, also has fears, but he responds very differently. Jesus doesn't put up a fight at all, but he submits himself to these evil men. He doesn't pretend like they're good. He, he recognizes it's evil, but he submits himself to them. Look at verse 49. He says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. So why do you think Jesus and the disciples react so differently to this cup? How is it that Jesus can submit to this hardship, this evil, while the disciples fight and flee? They do everything they can to get away. And there's lots of answers, but the one we're going to focus on now is is a simple answer, and that is that Jesus understood that this cup was not an accident. This cup was not an accident. It was from the hand of God. And that God would use these evil men for ultimate good. So Jesus faced it, not with fear, but with intentionality, saying, as he does, let the scriptures be fulfilled. How does this apply to you? Do you tend to run from hard things that God is calling you to? Maybe you fight it. Maybe you flee. You have to recognize that these responses are are functional atheism. When we do this, and we all do it, we're doing it because we, we don't believe that God is sovereign over every molecule, over every circumstance that comes into our lives. And of course, our running only makes the situation worse. So we grumble, we say things like, how did I get stuck with, with this kid, with this ridiculously disobedient child? Or, or what are the odds of me getting this type of disease? Or if, if I could only have a different spouse, then I'd be happy. You see, all of these, what they have in common is that they forget that God is sovereign over our circumstances. So understand this. Whatever your cup is, like Jesus, your cup, whatever it is, is not an accident. It is not an accident. Genesis 50.20 says, um, this is Jacob speaking to his brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many people. So I'll just ask you simply, spend some time thinking, what cup is God calling you to drink? We all have one as Christians. We all have probably more than one. We have many. What cup is God calling you to drink? Kids, 
one of the cups you get to drink as kids is you have imperfect parents. Your parents are sinners. They have weaknesses. They have flaws. And you may wish sometimes, I wish my dad wasn't that way. I wish my mom wasn't this way. But what this means is that God gave you your parents on purpose. It's not an accident that you have the parents that you have. He intends to use even their flaws for your good. Which means you can submit to them. Even when you disagree with them. And you will disagree with them. This brings us uh, to point two. To point two in our outline. How can you handle your cup faithfully? Talk to God honestly about your cup. This is really important. We see Jesus doing this. We see this starting in verse 33. Uh, you, you probably have experienced this before. It's often the anticipation of suffering that's actually worse or more painstaking than the suffering itself. And so Jesus, as he, he sees the cross coming, he is absolutely overwhelmed with sadness and he falls to the ground. Look at verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. Just a, a real quick note about this word uh, troubled. It is it doesn't really do it justice. It's the strongest word for like distress, for being distraught. It is, it is overwhelming. It's something like, almost like a panic attack. It is, it is consuming him. He is distressed and troubled. He is thinking ahead to the Roman cross in the physical suffering, but he's also thinking, he's likely thinking about the spiritual suffering the weight of God's wrath poured out on him. Here's Jesus, the only one who's had a perfectly blissful relational intimacy with God the Father and God the Spirit from eternity past, forever. He's had that relationship and it's about to be completely separated. And he sees that and he is absolutely overwhelmed and he falls to the ground But I want you to pay attention to this. In the midst of this suffering, who does Jesus turn to? Oh, he he turns to his friends. He asks for their help, but they're, they're not much help. So he goes to God. He talks to God, the ultimate source of his cup. Look at verse 35. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, you, maybe you know this word, Abba. Um, the equivalent would be, dads, when you get home from work and your kids run up to you and they say, Daddy, 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 this is the word that ancient Jewish dads would hear when they got home from work. Abba, Abba, Abba. Abba's home. Daddy's home. 
It shows intimacy, trust, care, the paternal love that's unique to a father-child relationship. And look at what Jesus asks of his heavenly dad. He's honest with God about his struggle to drink the cup. He he doesn't pretend that it's not going to be hard. He doesn't pretend to be excited about the hardship. He doesn't act like he's tough enough. He doesn't act like it's no big deal. He says to God, he begs God, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In this this last phrase, not what I will, but what you will, Jesus is saying, I don't like this. I'm not happy about this. No, No part of me is looking forward to drinking this cup. I don't want to drink this cup. Is there any other way? And what does Jesus hear back from his, his daddy? What does he hear? Silence. Silence. And so he responds, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is Jesus wrestling with God. Pleading with God and then submitting to God. Do you know what uh, the name Israel means? This is a rhetorical question, um, but do you know what the name Israel means? You would think if God named his people, so Israel is the Old Testament people of God, the one nation that he set apart for his, and their name means wrestles with God. You might think it would mean something like, you know, gets along great with God, or always agrees with God, or friend of God. But no, Israel, the one one people that God chose in the Old Testament, their name is wrestles with God. And as a Christian, when the cup comes into your life, this is to be your name too wrestles with God, one who wrestles with God, not one who pretends to agree with God. Never let that be your name. If you agree with God about everything, then you have made God in your own image. And this happens all the time. I've done it myself many times. To say it another way, you will never have a real relationship with God You will never have a real relationship with God until you admit that you and him don't agree about everything. How can you faithfully handle the cup that is God's will for your life? Talk to him honestly about it. What does that look like? It looks like saying, God, I wanted a perfect marriage. I hoped for a perfect marriage. Or I hoped for a healthy body. I had dreams of living a healthy life. I wished for a childhood filled with joy. 
but you are God and I am not. I submit to your will. Or as Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will. This is what it looks like to talk honestly with God. This brings us to point three. How can you handle your cup faithfully? And this is incredibly important for you to understand. This is the most important out of all of these. If you don't get this, the other two are, are, are hopeless, I think. Believe that Jesus drank the cup meant for you. You have to know this. Why do we run from our cups? Why do we run from the, the hardships and the evil that God ordains for our lives? We've already talked about some reasons, but one, one big reason is because we think God is punishing us. We imagine that God is exacting his revenge. We owe him a debt, and he's coming to collect. We think our cups are a sign of God's anger and his wrath for us. And why? Why would anyone submit to an angry and abusive authority? If you think God is there just to pour out wrath on you, why would you submit to that? But is this true? Is this, is this why? Is this God's posture towards us? And it's at this point you have to realize that there is a, a, a categorical difference between your cup and Jesus' cup. Let's talk about Jesus' cup. It's completely different from yours. Why is it different? Jesus was drinking the cup of God's wrath for human sin. It's foaming, it's overflowing with God's righteous anger, his just wrath against sin. It's a cup, Jesus' cup is a cup of condemnation. It's a cup of curses. It's a cup meant for sinners. And that's the cup that he drank. And you need to understand that he drank every last drop of that cup. Jesus drank every last drop of God's cup of wrath. And do you know what that means for you as a Christian? It means that for those who put their faith in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more wrath to be found. Jesus drank every drop. As a Christian, you could go searching for God's wrath. You could do all the, the bad things you possibly could in hopes that you would get to experience some of God's wrath. And you would come back and you'd realize there is no wrath left for me as a Christian. You won't find it. You can't find it. He's drank every last drop. And that means that your cup, no matter how bitter it may be, is not a cup of God's wrath. It is always and only a cup of his loving, fatherly discipline. There's no wrath left. There's no anger. There's no debt. Jesus paid it all. 
as a Christian, the cup that comes to you is for your good. And even behind the cup of suffering is God's smiling face. It's there to sharpen you and to train you. If, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. We are glad that you're here. But please listen. God's cup of wrath is a reality. And it is coming. And the only way out, the only way not to drink that cup is to trust in Jesus. And let him drink the cup for you. Please. Please. Christians, you have to take hold of this reality. Christ has drunk every last drop of God's anger and wrath towards you for your sin. The only thing left, if you want to drink something from God, the only thing left to drink is his love and blessing. Do you feel that? I want to apply this in one very specific way. How do you treat yourself? When you make a mistake, when you miss a turn in the car, when you forget something that you should have remembered, when you return to a besetting sin, how do you treat yourself? Do you call yourself bad names? Do you belittle yourself? Do you demean yourself? Stupid. Do you condemn yourself? Pour out wrath? Of course, we would, never, we would never talk to someone else that way, but we're comfortable demeaning ourselves, condemning ourselves. What this truth that we just meditated on, what this truth means is that when you treat yourself that way, you are calling God a liar. You're saying, Jesus, you know, you didn't really drink all of that wrath. I deserve some more wrath. There's more wrath for me. How? How could we condemn ourselves when God has only love and tenderness towards us? Do not treat yourself with contempt. Do not call God a liar. You have to realize that how you treat yourself is a reflection of how you think God treats you. And there is no wrath left. There's only love. I want to I close uh, by circling back to Joni. Probably many of you know her story and how it ends um, or how it continues. You remember Joni, this, the energetic 17-year-old who, who after being paralyzed is bound to a wheelchair When we left her, she was bitter, she was depressed, she was ready to die, angry at God for this cup that she had to bear. But one day, the spirit moved in Joni. One day, through a friend and mentor of hers, she finally was able to accept her suffering because she understood that it was from the hand of her loving Heavenly Father. And the bitterness disappeared. Joy in life came. Joni Erickson Tata would go on to uh, write 
a, a book about her story in 1976. It became an international bestseller and it was translated into almost 40 languages. In 1979, her story was made into a movie which would be broadcast around the globe and over 250,000 people would come to place their hope in Christ through that film. She founded Joni and Friends, an organization that brings the hope of the gospel to people impacted by disability around the globe. She has gone on to minister to thousands, millions around the world. She's gone on to advise U.S. presidents to provide wheelchairs for people. The list just goes on and on. Her impact has been enormous. But what's the point? How did one woman do all this? How did one woman, not just one woman, one woman who is bound to a wheelchair, who unlike most of us can cannot use her hands or her legs. How did she do this? She believed this. She believed that every last drop of God's wrath for her was poured out on Christ. And therefore, she knew that behind her cup, behind her suffering, which was so severe, was the smiling face of her heavenly father her Abba. And so she faced the pain with joy and contentment. So I say to you, I say to you all and to myself, Christian, submit to God. Drink your cup. Stop running from your cup. Your heavenly Father means it for your good. There is not an ounce of wrath left for you. And there's so much joy to be found in the midst of it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you for drinking this cup. Would you help us believe that you drank it and that you finished it? There's nothing left at the bottom. There's no wrath left for us. Lord, I pray now as we come to the Lord's Supper that you would um, make this spiritual reality real as we partake of a physical meal. And we thank you for this and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.